dreaming about parking spaces. I don't know why. When I was younger, I dreamt I had superpowers. I flew. I walked through walls. I saw through pretty girls' clothes. But lately, my subconscious has been stuck in labyrinthine lots and garages. Usually, I'm not even driving a car. I walk across the asphalt, up concrete ramps, past part vehicle after vehicle, search ploddingly and alone for an open space. Sometimes I find an amazing space and wake up with a hard on. Other times I find nothing and wake up despondent and flaccid. Once every blue moon, I have a nightmare. I find something so awful and terrifying that I wake up shaking, my teeth and hands clenched, my sheets soaked with sweat. I never can remember what it was that terrified me. I change my sheets and tell myself not to worry about it. It was just a dream, only a dream. At work, my assigned parking space isn't what it could be. It's on the far side of the moat, so I have to present my ID to Millborough at the guardhouse and walk across the pedestrian drawbridge like a schmuck as my more esteemed co-workers gallop across the main bridge on horseback or zip past security in expensive sport utility vehicles and sedans. I work at the Royal Center for Dragon and Basilisk Preparedness, a division of the Ministry of Defense. We provide logistical support and contingency planning to local municipalities in the event of an attack by a fearsome winged or slithering beast. Our jurisdiction used to include sea monsters, but after the latest round of budget cuts, all sea monster mitigation was relegated to an auxiliary wing of the Royal Navy. When the sea monster staffers left, packed the contents of their cubicles into cardboard boxes, and rode the elevator to the lobby for the last time, I figured that my opportunity for a parking space on the near side of the moat had finally come. But no. We leased our vacated office space to a private security contractor, the Knights of the White Rose, and all the primo parking went to a bunch of well-connected goons in chainmail and suits of armor. No one's sure what the Knights of the White Rose even do. Mostly they just watch jousting matches on their computers and hit on our female staffers and college interns in the elevator and in our shared kitchen. My coworker Sedgefield says the Knights' average base salary is 90,000 ducats a year, and they make even more in bonuses. Bonuses for what? I said, screwing our interns. My base salary is 25,000 ducats. My annual bonus is a congratulatory ceramic coffee mug. I get the same mug every year. Good work, says the mug. You're doing an excellent job. Monday. I ride the elevator to my fourth floor cubicle with a hard cider headache and a trio of Knights of the White Rose boisterously recounting all the wenching they did over the weekend. Every Monday, as I stand in the elevator and watch the floors sequentially light up, L, 2, 3, 4, I can barely believe that another work week is just starting. Maybe there's been some mistake, I always think, hopefully. Maybe I'm still dreaming. But then the elevator door opens, and the nights file out, and I trudge forlornly to my cubicle like I've trudged every Monday for the past 11 years, and I resign myself to the fact that this is not a dream, that it's really Monday, that this is, inescapably, my life. I reach my desk and turn on my computer, an ancient discontinued model that emits loud whirs and whines of protest every time I press its power button. In the 11 years I've worked at the RCDBP, I've never seen purchasing order a single computer manufactured since the abdication of King Edgar the Indiscreet. 
whenever a computer goes haywire, freezes intermittently, displays increasingly erratic error messages, emits smoke or nauseous gas, IT sends Melchizedek the office wizard to repair the afflicted machine with mystic incantations, foul-smelling potions, and a wave of his magic wand. The Knights of the White Rose, on the other hand, upgrade their computers every year. Their state-of-the-art chrome-plated laptops and desktops is polished and pristine as their custom-forged suits of armor. My computer finishes booting, attenuates its complaints to a modest mechanical grumble, and I check my government email. The majority of my messages are spam, hyperlinks promising easy income, heightened sexual prowess, nude photos of princesses and ladies in waiting. My job is to audit the contingency plans of villages, hamlets, and townships, assess rural government's crisis management protocols should a dragon or basilisk assail their constituents, but local officials always take their sweet time responding to me. Not that I blame them. It's been several hundred years since anyone's even seen a dragon or basilisk. Deficit hawks have been trying to get the king to mothball our agency for years, but as the Minister of Defense likes to say on the political talk shows, there is no enemy more dangerous than one whom you cannot see. I junk my spam and speed read an email from our administrative assistant Hildegard about the potluck sign-up sheet for the upcoming office Shrovetide party. The email is way longer than it needs to be. Mostly, she keeps reminding us to carefully follow her elaborate color-coded plate system so none of the system's analysts with gluten or nut allergies go into anaphylactic shock like they did at the Feast of the Holy Innocents party. I listen to my voicemail. Various rural officials claim they misplaced my faxes or don't understand my faxes or never received my faxes and then start a game of online archery. My first three arrows don't even hit the target. My boss passes by, and I minimize the online archery and pretend to read my email. It's Monday, says my boss. It's Monday, I say. I pretend to read my email for another minute, then resume my online archery. My opponent's listed age is 11. She's beating me like a rented mule. I half-heartedly fire a few more wayward arrows and then exit the game, start preparing the faxes that were supposedly lost or never received. Was this what I imagined my job would be like when I applied for a position with the RCDBP straight out of community college? The recruitment brochures made it seem so much more exciting. There were lots of photos of attractive women wearing headsets and smiling at bar graphs. There were full-color illustrations of marauding basilisks and dragons. I head over to the all-in-one laser printer to collect my documents and find Melchizedek, the office wizard, castigating the printer in Latin and sprinkling its feed mechanism with a bubbling, bright green elixir. Imperibus meritus pendent tria corpora ramus, says Melchizedek, his cloak riddled with nacho cheese stains, his long white beard speckled with cobwebs and crumbs. I think there's a paper jam, I say, pointing at the blinking paper feed light. Multi multa, nemo omnia novit, says Melchizedek, ignoring me. Omni ignotum, pro magnifico est. The paper jam light keeps blinking. Melchizedek keeps encanting and sprinkling. We've been telling IT to send us someone else, anyone else. An intern would be fine, but they always say their hands are tied. Apparently, it's a seniority thing. Melchizedek has two more years before he can collect his full pension. The old-timers in the office say that 30 years ago, during the reign of King William the Swell, Melchizedek was a miracle worker. He could fix a temperamental copy machine or a misfiring typewriter with a wriggle of his nose and a wave of his hand. But not anymore. Whatever unearthly powers of technical support he may have once possessed 
have left him. Whatever magic he may have had is now long gone. It's a great invention, but we're underfed. Gather, gather people I love. And then erupt a crypt. Yeah, follow the ghost. Given an inch is gonna make them well. Take the frown and just make up any old spell. These people. Basilisk preparedness, lunch options are limited. There's barley, etc., outside the lobby, and a vending machine that dispenses sheep's feet and mutton. But if you want anything else, you have to venture to the other side of the moat. My wife Emmeline used to pack me a sack lunch, a sandwich, soup, a salad, potato crisps, fresh fruit, a King James soda. But we've been separated for the past month. I came home from work one day and her closet was empty and the sweet scented exfoliating soaps I had bought her for her birthday were gone from our bathroom drawers. I packed my own lunch for a few days but quickly gave up. I just didn't have the heart. The seed cakes at Barley etc. are two for one through the month of February. The vending machine mutton isn't as bad as it sounds. Today I share a Barley Etc. lunch table with Bruce the Elder and Bruce the Younger, no relation. Bruce the Elder is a programmer for Dragon Watch, our Dragon and Basilisk early detection system. Bruce the Younger works in media relations. Both Bruce's were groomsmen at my wedding. Sedgefield, who works as an analyst for our strategic planning division, was the best man. Emmeline and I got married at the Cathedral of St. Pius, just down the road. The reception was at the Boarshead Inn. We had a grand old time. Sedgefield and some college buddies played a few love ballads on the lute and hurdy-gurdy, and then a DJ spun Gregorian chant. Three years ago today, I was honeymooning with Emmeline on the Isle of Paradise. White sand, blue skies, pink drinks, silver sheets. It was heavenly for a week, but honeymoons can't last forever. Bruce the Elder finds a tooth in his seed cake and complains to the Barley Etc. counter girl. Bruce the Younger says Barley Etc. has been going downhill ever since they discontinued their endless gruel promotion last September. I take out a hip flask and pour some brandy into my Diet King James orange soda to take the edge off as Bruce the Elder rants and raves in front of the cash register. Customers stare. Bruce is really giving the counter girl hell over that tooth. 
Yeah, I think he's been having problems at home. Says Bruce the Younger, who bites into his own seed cake warily. I take a swig of the brandy and soda. It doesn't taste the best, but these days, what does? Four and a half hours later, the workday is done, and Sedgefield, the Bruces, and I head over to Sir Majesty's, a nearby sports pub, for a pint and reduced price appetizers. Still in the thick of college jousting season, Sir Majesty's has six different jousting matches playing on its multiple plasma flat screen TVs, and pub patrons, many sporting their school colors, intermittently cheer, curse, and weep. Should see Shepherd's Bush versus Castle Rock on Saturday? Says Sedgefield, who jousted junior varsity in high school. What a bloodbath. Wasn't even close. They have freshmen for Shepherd's Bush is killing everyone out there. A jouster knocks his opponent off his horse with a lance to the chest, and crimson-clad fans in a far corner of the pub erupt in jubilation. In another corner, men and women wearing silver and blue hang their heads and make the sign of the cross. A scrolling ticker at the bottom of every screen lists up-to-the-minute scores and wounded jousters' medical states. Two jousters for Iron Gate are critical but stable. Another two are progressing well. A sophomore for Middlesbury is discharged. A senior for St. Jude is deceased. So, how's everything with Heloise? Bruce the Younger says to Bruce the Elder. The Bruces both went to Calvary Cross, a perennial jousting powerhouse. The same, says Bruce the Elder, finishing off a pint of Old Phineas. Two weeks now with a cold shoulder, all because they don't want to enroll the kids in private school. Well, you went to private school, says Sedgefield. Exactly, says Bruce the Elder. You think I want my kids to turn out like me? Bruce the Elder has two children, a boy of three and a girl of five. They're good kids, I guess. My wife's a lot better with kids than I am. Bruce's wife, Heloise, is a saleswoman at Designer Corset Surplus, out by the Leech and Save. She's a bit intense, but her heart's in the right place. She used to give my wife special discounts on leather bodices. Maybe she still does. I haven't heard from Emmeline in over two weeks. Of course, what it really comes down to is money continues Bruce the Elder. My salary's leveled off, I'm in year three of a pay freeze, but tuitions keep going up. You know what it's gonna cost me to put those two kids through private school? Let me tell you, you don't wanna know. I think parents underestimate how much having children costs. Kids don't come out of the womb with price tags on their ankles, but maybe they should. You know, take a quick gander at how many ducats your little treasure's gonna set you back and then make an informed decision. Is child rearing a recoupable investment? Is parenthood really advisable in your tax bracket? Will this bundle of joy become a gift that keeps on giving, or a beast that burdens? Is the miracle of childbirth a miracle you'll be able to afford? A party of four Knights of the White Rose enters Her Majesty's, just in time to see a jouster from St. Stephen's disqualified for lancing an opponent in the head. A table of college girls wearing St. Stephen's scarlet and gray howl in protest as the ejected jouster is escorted from the arena and his opponent is loaded by medical personnel onto a gurney. Think those knights, says Bruce the Elder. You know those codpiece lickers went to private school. Think I want my son ending up like them? Waving his sword around, constantly reliving his jousting days, hitting on girls half his age at some majesties while wearing a full suit of armor? I don't know, says Sedgefield. I think I'd be pretty happy if my son were a knight. You know how much those guys make, right? We've seen him at the office. We barely do anything. But that's just it, says Bruce the Elder. I don't want my kids to do nothing. I don't want them to be rewarded for greasing the right palms, exploiting loopholes, gaming the system. I want my kids to have integrity, to make a difference, to earn an honest living. There's nothing honest about living, says Bruce the Younger. Not these days, at least. At the other end of the bar, a contingent of St. Thomas the Apostle fans foam halos on their heads, whistle, whoop, and cheer. Their team's star jouster has won his 11th consecutive match, instant replay showing his opponent crumpling to the ground and lying face down in the dirt, 
completely motionless. My wife left me on a Monday. We'd been fighting the night before, trading barbs, talking in circles about something of little importance. It was nothing new. Things had been bad between us for some time. At first, I embraced her absence. Peace and quiet, I thought, when I came home from work each day to our empty apartment. About goddamn time. But then the weekend came, and I sat, alone, in the living room where living had always meant watching Emmeline's shows, smelling Emmeline's cooking, hearing Emmeline's voice, and peace and quiet became just quiet. It was so quiet, an oppressive quiet. I had lived alone before, in between girlfriends, before Emmeline got evicted from her apartment in the Saltworks district and crashed with me, before crashing became crushing, before crushing became love. But I had never experienced a domestic silence and stillness this profound, this unnerving. It made me feel ill. I kept the television on, blasted the radio, tried to battle the quiet as best I could, but still it enveloped me, still it haunted me. The Knights of the White Rose buy the college girls a round of drinks, and they raise their pints in a toast. I called my wife repeatedly over the weekend, but never got through to her, never heard even her pre-recorded voice. A stranger always stiltedly informing me that my wife's mailbox was full. I received a call from her a week later. I told her I missed her, that I was sorry, that I wanted her to come home, and she told me her sister would be stopping by to pick up her mail. We argued again. I said some regrettable things. We're sorry, said the familiar stilted stranger when I called my wife to apologize after she hung up on me mid-diatribe. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. A jouster from St. Stephen's scores a decisive victory and the college girls leap into the air, embrace the knights of the white rose, clap their hands and pump their fists. Meanwhile, Above their heads, a plasma flat screen shows the defeated jouster falling, broken, to the ground, in exquisite slow motion, again, and again, and again. that the majority of thatch-roof cottages in the hinterlands are not up to fire code. The internet is down, and Melchizedek, the office wizard, performs a strange, dark ritual with a vial of blood, animal teeth, and an ethernet cable. Occasionally, helium balloons float by. It's our receptionist Rhiannon's birthday, and the Knights of the White Rose are doing serious damage to the cake. For lunch, the 
Bruce's Sedgefield and I decide to drive across the moat to Soups and Stags. Bruce the Elder is on day one of a Marley etc. boycott. He still steamed about the tooth in his seed cake. I ask Bruce if his wife has seen Emmeline at Designer Corset Surplus lately, and he says I'd have to ask his wife myself. She's still giving him the silent treatment over his resistance to enrolling their kids at Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. It's a tricky thing, marriage, says Bruce the Elder, in between bites of his bacon, elk, and cheese. Tell you what, you gotta be a goddamn tactical genius just to make it to your first anniversary. Half the time you feel like you're under siege, and the other half the time you feel like you're charging into the barrel of a cannon. So what do you do? When do you go on the offensive? When do you utilize diplomacy? When do you make concessions? When do you stand your ground? My wife and I don't need marriage counseling, we need our own war rooms. We don't need better communication, we need seven party talks. So at what point do you call for reinforcements? Do you call for a ceasefire? Do you call for an airstrike? When do you finally surrender? At what point do you drop the bomb? Bruce the Younger has been thinking about getting married. He's been with his girlfriend Guinevere since his freshman year at Calvary Cross. Neither Bruce the Elder nor I can give holy matrimony a ringing endorsement, but I don't think that matters to Bruce the Younger. When you're in love, it's almost impossible to imagine yourself out of love. Your love is eternal and infinite. Your love is too big to fail. So Emmeline's still staying at her sister's, huh? Says Sedgefield. You ever tried going over there? Nah, she lives in a gated community, I say. Guardhouse and all that. You've got to call and have someone buzz you in. I don't know what all Emmeline's told her sister, but judging from the last time I spoke to her over the phone, there's no way in hell that she's buzzing me in. I hate gated communities, says Bruce the Elder, unwrapping his second bacon up and cheese. Aesthetically and sociopolitically. If I were a burglar, I would only rob homes within gated communities purely as a means of social commentary. If you were a burglar, says Bruce the Younger, the cops would throw you in a holding cell with a bunch of glue maniacs and sheep rapists. Purely as a means of social commentary. At Sedgefield, we finish our soup and stags and head out to the parking lot. Sedgefield, the only single man among us, tells us how his date with the food critic went last night. He says she was cute, dark hair and almond eyes, just his type, but she spent half the night railing against coriander. He says he could never be with someone who possessed such a visceral hatred of an herb. As Sedgefield gives us the lowdown on Ms. Coriander, tells us how she gave measured praise to the croutons in her side salad, but was deeply offended by the raspberry vinaigrette. A giant SUV backs out at a frightening speed in front of Bruce the Elder's two-door near the parking lot exit. Bruce slams on the brakes and lays on the horn, but can't avoid the freshly waxed luxury behemoth. There's a sickening crunch as Bruce's hood hits the side of the SUV, bringing both vehicles to a stop. Hey Bruce! says Sedgefield, as Bruce the Elder curses and lays once more retroactively into his horn. I know that car. You'll never guess who you just hit. Who I just hit? Says Bruce the Elder. You mean who just hit me? Well, whatever. Either way, take a look. The doors open on the non-impacted side of the SUV and outpour five agitated men in full suits of armor. Metal joints creak and steel boots clank against the parking lot asphalt as the men check out the damage, gesticulate wildly, and then approach Bruce's car. The SUV's driver raps on Bruce's driver's side window, and Bruce's face turns the color of a rare steak. He curses once more, shuts off the ignition with a furious flick of his wrist. Bruce the Elder has just T-boned the knights of the White Rose. Hey pal, you're gonna pay for this! shouts the SUV's driver, his voice muffled by the faceplate of his helmet as Bruce steps out into the parking lot to confront his armored adversaries. Are you kidding me? says Bruce the Elder. I'm gonna pay. I've got the right of way. You pull out in front of me like a goddamn spooked mule. Spooked mule? says the driver. I exercise due caution. 
My car has parking sensors. You must have been racing through the parking lot like a March Hare on fire, because my sensors didn't sense a lily-loving thing. You know, you SUV owners are so arrogant. You all drive like every other vehicle on the road is just a bug you can brush away with your windshield wipers. You wish you could afford a car like mine. Taunt the night. Instead of your 20-year-old two-wheel drive rust donkey. <laughs> uh, and to think, I just paid 200 large for a bumper-to-bumper -bumper ultimate magic wax at the auto apothecary. Took three hours. Five-step process, rotary buffer, cleaner wax, sealer wax, animal sacrifices, pagan dance. Bruce the Elder surveys the damage for himself, spitting on the ground every time he looks at his mangled, half-detached front bumper. Look, I'm gonna call the cops so they can file a police report, he says. Otherwise, my insurance company might not waive my deductible on the repairs. The cops are gonna want your insurance information, so I recommend you go ahead and have that ready. The knight, lifting up his faceplate and revealing his aquiline nose and stormy gray eyes, doesn't budge. His compatriots flank him on either side, the midday sun glinting off the blades of their swords and the breastplates of their suits. Now slow down there, boyo, says the knight. No reason to bring the old bill into this. How about you just write me a check for a thousand ducats and we'll call this one a wash? Yeah, that's not gonna happen, says Bruce, taking out his phone. The Knight of the White Rose steps forward, pulls the iron glove off his right hand, and tosses the gauntlet onto the ground. Well, all right then. Looks like we'll be settling this with a duel. The other knights hoot and high-five. Duel! 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 A small crowd has gathered in the parking lot. Young, wide-eyed children point at the knights, and teenagers with camera phones take pictures. The Knights of the White Rose show off for the photographers, bang their gauntlets against their breastplates, issue triumphant, trilling battle cries, perform tricks with their shields and swords. Meanwhile, Bruce the Younger, Sedgefield, and I remain in the car as Bruce the Elder stares flummoxed at the gauntlet lying on the asphalt in front of his feet. Sorry, Skip, says Bruce, but we are not going to be settling this with a duel. Sir Faustus, the revered, says the knight. What? Don't call me Skip. Call me Sir Faustus, the revered. Whatever, man. Just get your license and insurance card, okay? Sir Faustus, the revered's face darkens. All right, that's it. You asked for it. He tosses his other gauntlet onto the ground. Now it's a double duel. Oh, yeah. yeah! Say the other knights. Double duel! Double duel! Double duel! Chant the crowd exuberantly. The young children dance on parking islands, and the teenagers' cameras flash. Hey! Says Bruce the Elder. There is not going to be a duel, and there is definitely not going to be a double duel, whatever that entails. I'm calling the police, and then I'm calling my insurance company. There are protocols for this. There are established practices. There are more effective ways of handling a routine traffic accident than engaging in Mortal Kombat. Bruce the Elder climbs back in his car, locks the doors, and calls the police. Outside, in the parking lot, the knights and the crowd keep chanting, Double duel! Double duel! Double duel! The police arrive, take statements from us and the knights, issue the SUV's driver a verbal warning for pulling out of his space recklessly, and give him and Bruce copies of their official report for insurance purposes. Bruce sticks the report to his glove compartment. The SUV's driver shreds his copy with his sword and vows upon his father's grave that his sport utility vehicle will be avenged. The crowd disperses, disappointed by the lack of any bloodshed, but not before a few ne'er-do-wells pelt Bruce's car with tiny tomatoes from soups and stacks side salads. Bruce drives us out of the lot, the Knights of the White Rose waving their swords menacingly as we pass the T-boned SUV, and we head back to work, the dislodged front fender of Bruce's car flapping rhythmically in the February wind. It's Tuesday, says our boss when we arrive at the office. It's, it's Tuesday. Tuesday, we say. The internet's still down when I return to my cubicle. 
Melchizedek's still soaking ethernet cables in the blood of freshly slaughtered livestock. I put in another four good hours of staring blankly at my computer screen and leaving messages I know will never be returned on rural officials' voicemails, and then ride the elevator down to the lobby, take the pedestrian bridge across the moat, and drive home. My commute takes me past the Castle of Sorrow, past my alma mater, St. George Community College, past subdivision after subdivision, past a trumpet club, an archery range, a dungeon. At home, I pour some brandy into one of my many congratulatory coffee mugs and watch Emmeline's favorite shows, Duchess for a Day, Dowries of the Stars, So You Think you can mill. I always used to mock my wife's taste in television, one of the many instigators of our daily fights, but now that she's gone, her shows don't seem as mindless and contrived. I know all the words to the theme song of Duchess for a Day. I know the name of every contestant for this season of So You Think You Can Mill. Why did I say all those terrible things to Emmeline? Why was I always so quick to dispute and attack her? Why was I always at her throat? In the months since she left, I've replayed our fights a thousand times. You have to be a tactical genius, Bruce the Elder says. I see now, in the post-mortem analysis, how far from a genius I am. I see now how disastrously I have failed. I watched this evening's Duchess for a day try on corsets and go fox and quail hunting and handle a falcon and knock back brandy after brandy until my depth perception becomes so poor I can no longer locate the bottle. Good work, says my mug of brandy, as I try and fail to leave the couch where I've passed out in an 80-proof stupor the last dozen nights. You're doing an excellent job. Lying awake in South Beach sand The breeze is just my ceiling fan at the office with an armful of human skulls, which he deposits on Rhiannon the receptionist's desk. Those slug-sucking sword strokers are gonna pay for this, he says, as Rhiannon screams and then passes out onto her computer keyboard. Put me through to human resources! I would like to make a formal complaint! After Rhiannon is revived with some strong-smelling mustard from the office refrigerator and sent home to take a personal day, Bruce the Elder explains that someone piled the skulls in his parking space overnight, and not just the skulls on Rhiannon's desk. He estimates that it would take him 
10 to 15 more trips up and down the elevator to carry all the skulls from the parking lot into the office. Sedgefield asks Bruce why he would carry all the skulls into the office, and Bruce says he wouldn't. It's just a rhetorical illustration. Hildegard asks why he brought any skulls into the office, and Bruce says, To serve as a helpful visual aid. In addition to the skulls, someone left Bruce a threatening message scrawled on the asphalt with either red paint or blood. Cowards die many times before their deaths, the message said. Cowards misspelled, leaving Bruce no doubt in his mind as to the identity of the culprits. Who else could screw up the spelling of a death threat, he says, but the famed knights of the White Rose. During lunch, across the moat at 4 and 20 Blackbirds, Bruce the Elder tells us how his meeting with human resources went. He'd been hoping to get the knights arrested, fired, or evicted, but instead he received a verbal warning not to bring skulls or any other human remains within 25 feet of agency property as per section 204 subsection 3 of the employee handbook. Which you know is just total BS, he says. Because how many times has Melchizedek waved around his great uncle's femur while trying to restore a webcam feed during a video conference? Bruce ran into several roadblocks in his complaint against the Knights, who are not technically employees of our agency, but do work for us as independent contractors on a job-by-job basis. For one, the parking lot security cameras had apparently been inoperative last night due to a computer glitch, so there was no hard evidence that the Knights of the White Rose were responsible for the skulls and the death threat. Also, human resources felt that the painted message was not technically a death threat. Um, it's really more of a philosophical musing, the HR lady had said. Don't you think? That just happens to touch upon dying and uh, death? In the end, despite Bruce's protests, the HR lady simply said that security would follow up on the matter and IT would make sure the parking lot security cameras were soon up and running in case there were any future incidents. Bruce told her to make sure IT used anyone but Melchizedek to fix the cameras, and she said that HR doesn't advise IT on personnel decisions, but Bruce could be sure that they would send their best man. So HR is obviously not going to do anything, says Bruce, as we stuff our faces with pie at 4 and 20 blackbirds. Which is why I propose that the four of us take matters into our own hands and go on a quest. A quest? says Sedgefield. What are we going to do? Says Bruce the Younger. Murder the knights with a sword retreat from a rock formation or some chick who lives in a lake? No, says Bruce the Elder. Here's what we do. You know how the knights love to flaunt the fact that they make more money than we do, right? Buy those flashy cars, ramble on and on about their country club memberships, wear their suits of armor damn near everywhere to the post office, the grocery store, the gym. Well, how do you get even with someone like that? Uh, make more money than they do? Suggests Sedgefield. Not what I was thinking, but... Give them bad stock tips, I say. Um... Beat them at lawn tennis? Says Bruce the Younger. Or bocce ball? Or, or golf? Okay, good suggestions, but, uh, I've got something better. Here's the plan. First, we find out where these flat dragons live. Then we do some, uh, reconnaissance. Uh, what are their most prized possessions? Do they have a collection of mounted stag heads? Do they have a priceless antique automobile? Do they have jet skis? What, if stolen, will they miss the most? Wait, when you say, if stolen, says Sedgefield, are you saying that we're gonna be stealing from them? That is exactly what I'm saying. So it's not really so much a quest, says Bruce the Younger, as it is burglary. No, it's definitely still a quest. A, a, A quest that entails burglary. Bruce begs us to join his quest for the remainder of lunch, but none of us acquiesces. He promises us a cut of any profits earned from selling the knight's stolen property in the black market, and Sedgefield asks Bruce where the nearest black market is, because he has an old toaster he's been trying to unload for years. On the car ride back to work, Bruce's front fender still flapping in the wind, 
Bruce argues that the principal goal of his quest isn't so much retribution as it is redistribution of wealth. He says that by literally stealing from those who have been figuratively stealing from society for years with their shady subprime prestidigitations and backroom deals, we will be restoring order to a world whose axis long ago tipped off balance in favor of the few, the well-connected, the elite. Sedgefield says that the problem with literal versus figurative stealing is that you go to literal versus figurative prison. Bruce the Younger reminds the elder Bruce that when he is arrested, his cellmates will be literal glue maniacs and literal rapers of sheep. Back at the office, Bruce's mystery antagonists continue to harass him. He finds post-it notes depicting decapitations and impalements on his computer screen. He receives menacing faxes from unknown numbers. He listens to 20 messages of heavy breathing on his voicemail. He starts to lose it. What are you looking at? He shouts at two college interns as they pass him near the water cooler. What do they tell you about me? What aspersions do they cast? What deceptions do they plant within your young, impressionable heads? Whatever they said, it isn't true! Do you hear me? Nothing they said is true! Concerned about Bruce the Elder's mental health, Bruce the Younger invites him out for drinks after work at the Drunk Monk Bar and Grill. Says it'll help take his mind off things. He invites me too, and I politely decline, but Bruce the Younger insists. He says I haven't been looking so good myself these last few weeks. He says I could stand to take my mind off of things, too. Wednesday is trivia night at the Drunk Monk, and when I arrive, Bruce the Younger and his girlfriend Guinevere have already secured a table and a pen and paper tablet for our answers. I'm not playing trivia, I say. Come on! says Guinevere. It'll be fun. Our team name is Jouster. I hardly know her. I'm not going to do it. David, we need you. I'll bet you're the smartest guy in the whole bar. I hope to God that isn't true. David, please. If we win, we get free communion wine jello shots. That sounds disgusting. Disgusting? Are you kidding? I guarantee you, if gelatin had been invented back then, Jesus wouldn't have turned water into wine. He would have turned wine into jello. Eventually, I relent and the three of us do battle against the other trivia teams, quietly confer with each other over the names of the first duke to record a number one pop single, the first executioner to reach 10,000 beheadings, the youngest known mistress of King Philip the Unchaste. Bruce the Elder joins us midway to the second round, and his stunningly comprehensive knowledge of television sitcoms and royal family gossip helps put us solidly in first place. We end up losing by one point in the final round to four Calvary Cross students whose team name is I Like Big Buttresses, but Guinevere buys us all a round of communion wine jello shots anyway. The blood of Christ, says the bartender and licensed Eucharistic minister as he sets our shots in front of us. Amen, Amen we say, swallowing the gelatinous manifestations of our Lord and Savior in quick greedy gulps. We keep drinking after trivia ends, down lagers and ciders and meads and ales. Guinevere put some ducats in the jukebox, and she and Bruce the Younger danced to Sweet Mary let us hasten to the bridal bed, and ample is my true love's girth, as Bruce the Elder and I order a round of brandy alisters and reminisce about the times when we, too, held close a woman we loved during a slow jam or madrigal. I remember the first time I ever took Halloween dancing, says Bruce the Elder. She was so goddamn beautiful. And I was a nervous, quivering wreck. You know, when she agreed to go out with me that first time, I remember actually thinking to myself, this is the best day of my life. But the moment I stepped onto the dance floor, the best day of my life became a nightmare. I was sweating. I, I felt like I was going to throw up. I, I could barely function. I was afraid I'd step on her feet or knock her over or some other guy would cut in and steal her away from me or I'd manage to embarrass myself in some novel and unprecedented way. 
and now she's your wife, I say, and now she's my wife. I remember dancing with Emmeline. I remember the way she looked at me, the way I looked at her, the way she moved, the way her skin felt when it was still unfamiliar, still a rare jewel I marveled at, handled with care, treasured. What happened to us? Why did the passion and tenderness and invincibility of new love always fade? Is love a deception? Is it an illness? Does it blind us to ugly truths about each other, truths that reveal themselves slowly and painfully over time? Or do we simply change? Do we change each other? Do our unions cause chemical reactions that alter states and dissolve bonds? And if we do change, is it possible to change back? Or is the damage irreversible? Have we vainly and recklessly squandered our only chance? After ample as my true love's girth ends, I step outside into the frigid February air for a cigarette. The king recently banned smoking indoors throughout the kingdom after his longtime court jester died of lung cancer. In the parking lot, three knights of the White Rose entertain a pack of drunken women with sword tricks, the women shrieking and clapping as the knights juggle their swords, swallow them, balance them on their noses, hurl them at stop signs and parking meters. Who are these women? These women attracted to the knight's glinting blades and armor the way a jackdaw is attracted to shiny baubles and rings. Emmeline has her faults, to be sure, but she is nothing like these wasted beauties wobbling around the parking lot in five-inch heels. She is not a wobbler, not a shrieker. She is not impressed by sword tricks, jousting trophies, royal insignias, family crests. She is not a jewelry-thieving jackdaw. She is an original, a free thinker, a collector of exotic bottle caps, a maker of intentionally bad jokes, a crack imitator of songbirds, a lover of double entendres and exfoliating soaps. She is my wife. She is... She is... Getting into a night of the White Rose's car. Oh my god her. I can see her face. I'm certain it's her. She shuts the passenger side door and I start sprinting toward the night's car. Emmeline, I shout. Emmeline, Emmeline. The car races out of the drunk monk parking lot when I'm a good 20 feet away and still I give chase. Emmeline, Emmeline. I've had too much to drink. I need to exercise more. It's so cold outside. My lungs are burning. At the edge of the lot, I collapse on a parking island and watch the night's car disappear to traffic on the adjacent boulevard. I wasn't just seeing things. I know it was her. Emmeline. 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 When I regain my breath, I stagger to my feet and storm inside the drunk monk. Bruce the Younger and Guinevere are still dancing and beckon me to join in, but I stride right past them, head straight to the table where Bruce the Elder is nursing his Brandy Alistair. I'm in, I say, slamming my fist on the tabletop. What? says Bruce the Elder. The quest, I say. I'm in for the quest. Oh! Says Bruce. You know, I've been thinking and maybe it's not such a... Let's do it. Let's steal their cars. Let's steal their boats. Let's steal their furniture, their TVs, their swords, their armor, their jet skis. I'm going to see that there are some uh, logistical issues that I didn't fully... Uh... Their silverware, their appliances, their doormats, their doorknobs, their rugs, their light bulbs, their coffee table books, their coffee tables, their drapes. Probably there are more effective options than... Uh... Let's steal their wives. Let's steal their children. The risks, I feel, outweigh the... Anything they value. Anything they cherish and love. I have a wife, you know. Uh, I got kids. Let's take it all. Let's take everything. And I do see now that the revenge is a dish best served. Uh... I'm in, I say, grabbing Bruce the Elder by his shirt collar. I'm in. In. Let's do this. David? 
cowards die many times before their deaths. Fuck that shit. David, what happened? Let's pick them clean. Let's pick them clean, like vultures. Did something happen? Let's do this. I'm in. Our quest starts now. David? Let's take those steel-waggling motherfuckers down. We'll fuck the sheets right off of the bed. We'll fuck the sheets right off of the bed. Well, we'll fuck the sheets right off of the bed. We'll fuck the sheets right off of the bed. We'll fuck the sheets right off of the bed. I'm left your right with we'll the sheets right off of the bed. Well, we'll fuck the sheets right off of the bed. I'm left your right with we'll the sheets right off of the bed. Well. Sedgefield still want no part of it and remind us daily that we are insane, which we probably are, but nonetheless, the quest continues. Bruce the Elder was able to get the home addresses of the Knights of the White Rose from a guy in payroll who owed Bruce a favor, and we've been going on stakeouts every weekday evening. On weekends, we conduct a reconnaissance all day and well to the night. The knights all live in gated communities, which have increased the quest's degree of difficulty. In some communities, we've spied on entering visitors and learned the security codes, and in others, we've simply hopped the gates. For some reason, gated communities almost universally underinvest in quality gates. One of the knights lives in the same community as my wife's sister, but we haven't staked him out yet. I'm not ready. I'm still mentally preparing myself for what I'm afraid I might find. To my surprise, almost all the knights have wives and children. Part of me expected their homes to host nightly bacchanalian ragers and a constant influx of loose women and underage girls, but other than the occasional children's birthday party or college jousting get-together, their houses have been quiet. We've watched them shuffle their driveways. We've watched them help their kids build snowmen. We've sat shivering in Bruce's car or behind evergreen foliage and seen through binoculars the knights having family dinner, carving turkey, pouring milk, dolloping mashed potatoes, passing the salt and the butter. My entire adult life, I had always assumed I was the knight's moral superior. Anyone who made as much money as they did had to be corrupt, I thought. They had cheated somehow, I was sure of it. There was no other explanation for why they had so much, and I had so little. But the more I spy on the knights and their families from the shadows, the less assured I am of their depravity and my rectitude. Is it their fault that I barely graduated from St. George Community College? Is it their fault that I work a dead-end job for a dead-end agency in year three of a pay freeze? Sure, they can be arrogant, they can be misogynistic, they wear those goddamn suits of armor everywhere, but would I really be that different if I made 90,000 ducats a year doing almost nothing? Am I really better than them? By almost every objective criterion, any independent observer would say that I am not. Is it their fault I pass out on my couch every night? Is it their fault I spike my morning coffee and lunch soda with brandy? 
Is it their fault my wife left me? Whose fault is it? Who do I blame? On whom do I meet my revenge? In the waning days of Emmeline's and my time together, I sometimes found myself wishing a dragon or basilisk would attack our town. I thought that maybe if she saw the importance of my work, saw me cool under crisis, saw me enacting contingency measures and making big decisions, she would once more see me as someone vital and indispensable in her life, would again look at me the way she looked at me when our love was new. And now that she's gone, these fantasies have only strengthened, become more frequent and vivid. I don't care how many homes are set on fire, how many families are destroyed, how many villages and towns and hamlets are wiped off the map. I don't care anymore. I just want her back. I want Emmeline back. Bruce and I sit in his car in a gated community called Pheasant Landings and watch the children of Sir Fenwick the Valorous make angels in the snow. Sir Fenwick's wife steps out onto the porch and calls the children inside, says there's hot cocoa waiting for them in the kitchen, but the children protest and their mother gives them five more minutes. Some neighborhood kids appear in the driveway and throw snowballs at the angel-making Fenwicks, who retaliate in kind, and soon an all-out bombardment breaks out, previously constructed snow forts utilized by both sides for cover. Bruce and I watch the snowballs whiz through the air and explode against the sides of the forts and tree branches and birdhouses and parked cars and mailboxes. None of the kids can aim for shit. Wordlessly, Bruce and I step out of the car and grab handfuls of snow, the warmth of our hands providing the requisite moisture for a perfect snowball as we advance toward the children, obliviously crouching behind their white battlements. We draw close enough to see the children's wool winter hats and cold blush cheeks and strike. The kids don't stand a chance. We launch snowball after snowball at point-blank range, score repeated direct hits against their foreheads, their Adam's apples, right between their eyes. The children freeze, don't even try to fight back, stare at us in disbelief. They don't know what's hit them. They're too stunned to scream or cry or call for help. And Sir Fenwick the Valorous's yard, in scenic pheasant landings, in the shadow of the Knight of the White Rose's magnificent three-story house, we keep pelting his children, send them sprawling backward, toss fastballs into their faces, even when they're lying supine on the ground. We won't stop. We won't show any mercy. We won't let up until the children finally surrender, until they admit defeat, until they let us know, unconditionally and unequivocally, that we've won. I've been thinking about the future, dear. Wondering how we'll make it through. Wondering just how long your hair will give While I'm changing conversations into tunes
been thinking about your family, dear. I know you've got your father's eyes. I know your sisters get best of you sometimes. Not to worry, you've got your mother's pride. Other voices holding on. Run away with me. Lead some quiet life. 